I uh, just want to give you an update uh, on Derek and Anne-Marie Ramsey. We've uh, mentioned them a few times on Sunday mornings. Uh, Derek texted me last night and said that, uh, so I found out a week or so ago that Anne-Marie, maybe more than that, it's everything, so I, I don't even know what day it is Some, sometimes. <laughs> I'm sure you're the same way, but um, Anne-Marie had gotten COVID as well and uh, seemed to be declining rather quickly. And then uh, Derek texted me last night and said that she's doing quite a bit better and he is doing quite a bit better. Um, he is off several of the steroids that he was on and his oxygen levels are staying high and he is on the road to recovery, which is a wonderful thing. So uh, I'm very thankful. He expressed just gratitude and appreciation. I know many of you have sent cards to them and I'm sure texted and tried to encourage them. And uh, it has been a long road for them, um, almost a month now, I think. So uh, just to encourage you that um, the Lord has definitely sustained them and they seem to be um, doing, doing quite a bit better and hopefully we'll be back um, within the next few weeks, maybe a month or so, although I don't want to put a timeline on that. So, uh, so I'm glad for that. It was great news to hear that, uh, that Derek in particular is doing, doing so much better. Uh, you can open your Bibles up this morning to Exodus. Exodus chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Uh, as you look around at our culture, um, there is, uh, there's one idea that is unquestioned by most people, that is just sort of taken as a truism, as uh, accurately reflecting reality. And that idea is the, the notion that freedom or liberty is defined as the absence of restraint. That any sort of restriction, any sort of guidelines or law is automatically hampering my freedom, and that true freedom is, is the absence of restraint. It's the, the belief that each individual person exists on his or her own, sort of stands alone, and has the unlimited capacity for choice. All the options are out there. And that true freedom is allowing that individual to choose whatever they want to, that there's no restraint placed on their ability to choose. I mean, if you want to be a pop star and you really like that and want to be that and think you should be that, then no one can stop you if you just believe in yourself, regardless of whether you're tone deaf or not. If you were born a man and you want to be a woman, then cast aside biological restraint and plot your own course because you are an individual. And true freedom is being able to choose whatever you want to choose without restraint. That belief, that idea has sort of seeped into our culture to the point where most people would, would say, well, what's the other option? What's the other definition of freedom? I mean, that's absolutely true. That, that idea is captured, I think, particularly well by a pretty famous poem that I'm sure some of you have heard before called Invictus. There's a movie with that title. I think there have been several of those. I'm going to read you a couple of verses from this poem. Here's the first verse. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Here's the last verse. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. 
And so the only real problem with that mentality is that it's just complete and utter hogwash. You are not the master of your fate. <laughs> You're not the captain of your soul, and neither am I. In fact, in reality, there's no such thing as freedom as the absence of restraint. There's no such thing as being completely free from any sort of imposition from the outside. You do not pilot your own soul. You are not the captain of your own fate. The current cultural understanding of freedom is fundamentally mistaken. And the great theologian Bob Dylan had it right. You've got to serve somebody. You are always going to serve somebody. Human beings are designed to serve the Lord, right? That's how we're made. But make no mistake, failure to serve the Lord will result in you serving some Lord. Giving your affection and your time and your energy and your life into the service of a lesser Lord. You cannot serve two masters, but you will serve one master. You always will. And as we move further into this first chapter of Exodus and finish up this chapter today, you and I are going to find Israel not free from restraint, but very much serving the wrong master. Now, to be fair to Israel here, it's not as if they, all million or so, or two million of them, decided that they were going to send themselves into Egypt in order to fall into slavery and end up serving the wrong master. That is not how this worked out. Things started out quite well for Israel in Egypt. I mean, if you remember back in the book of Genesis, things were going very well for them in Egypt. But as we get into this chapter, Israel's situation in Egypt is what happens as a result of sin. We will always serve someone. Sin and Satan dominate and enslave. And the result of that, as it continues, is death. Service to sin and Satan ends in spiritual death and eternal death. And so as we look at this, this is absolutely historically a true story about Israel. These events happen, but keep in mind, this is a microcosm of what happens to all of humanity. I mean, this shows us what it looks like to serve the wrong master, to be enslaved to someone as your master other than the Lord God. And so as you look at this bondage to the wrong master in the book of Exodus and in all of our lives is a necessary background for understanding and grasping the liberation that the gospel brings and that God brings to us. I mean, you have to reckon with this chapter and what's really happening to Israel before you can move into God's plan to deliver them and to actually bring them out of Egypt. And so this is why Moses starts here with explaining to us the situation. So this morning, as we get into the rest of this chapter, we are going to see in verses 8 through 22, oh, I, man, I'm really missing up my slides here, all sorts of things up there that I skipped, two consequences of serving the wrong master in verses 8 to 22 of chapter 1, two consequences of serving the wrong master, and you can see the first one of those consequences here, bitter bondage in verses 8 through 14. So we saw last time in, ch in chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, that there were connections to take us back to the story of Genesis. And we saw that Exodus, this book, continues the story that began in Genesis. 
It's the story of God's working to undo the curse and to bring blessing to all humanity. Now, now part of this was in verse 7. If you look back there, you can see this language. We talked about this last week, reflecting Genesis chapter 1. It's this language of God's commission to all humanity of being fruitful and multiplying. And you can see that this is happening to Israel. And so the point here is that God is beginning to do the work of undoing the curse and beginning to fulfill the creation mandate. In other words, he's working through the nation of Israel. He's blessing them. God's work is happening, and his promises to Abraham's family are beginning to come true. They're growing into a great nation. But of course, as they grow into this great nation, things are not going particularly well in Egypt. Look at verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Of course, to know who Joseph is, you have to go back to the book of Genesis. Hopefully, you're familiar with that. But this Pharaoh does not know Joseph. And that's important because when Joseph went into Egypt, obviously, he was taken into Egypt enslaved, but he was freed from prison, and he actually became the second most powerful political ruler in Egypt. I mean, he was a significant figure. And because of his position, Jacob and Joseph's brothers, Jacob his father and Joseph's brothers, were received into Egypt in, in, you know, very, very well. They were honored by the Egyptians. They were given land and they were, they were revered in Egypt. But it seems likely, we don't know for sure, it seems likely that when Joseph came to power that he came to power under an Egyptian dynasty that was ruled by foreigners. And so what had happened is another group of people had come in and had taken over Egypt and were actually reigning over the land of Egypt and over the Egyptians. And that was the Pharaoh, the king in Egypt, who Joseph came to power under. Well, since Joseph died, now it seems likely that a new king, a new dynasty had come and seized power in Egypt, and this dynasty was native Egyptians, and they had sort of retaken the country and were ruling again. And if that's true, then it makes sense here that this new dynasty of native Egyptians would be mistrustful of a foreigner, and of his people, right? Joseph was part of this previous dynasty, and so his relatives would be suspect to them. And so it's not abnormal for what happens to happen here. It's not abnormal for a native population to mistrust foreigners and immigrants who come in, and this Pharaoh begins to set policy along those lines. Look at verses 9 and 10. And he said to his people, Behold, The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. You can see here the us versus them language peppered throughout this verse. Pharaoh is painting a picture of this particular ethnic group, the Israelites, growing in number and growing in strength. And he's getting everyone to buy into his policy by saying they threaten us by their growing numbers and they may join with another foreign power, as has happened before. 
and they're going to overrun the land of Egypt and cover the land of Egypt. In this verse, he's not actually afraid, the end of verse 10, that they're going to escape from the land. What that, it probably should have been translated that they're going to cover the land. In other words, he's worried they're going to overrun the whole land with the aid of a foreign power. And the Egyptians are going to lose power again. And so that's kind of the political side of this. But there's something deeper that's happening in this as well. Pharaoh specifically says in verse 10, if you look there, come let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And that's the same word that is used in verse 7 to talk about God's creational blessing on the nation of Israel. And so what this indicates is that Pharaoh is setting himself up as anti-God and anti the purposes of God. He is trying to rule and reign over God's people in God's stead. And he's trying to keep the people of Israel from accomplishing God's purposes for them. God wanted them to grow into a great nation, as he promised Abraham. Pharaoh is trying to stop that. God wanted to bring these people into a promised land, the land of Canaan, that he would give them. Pharaoh is trying to keep them in his land and keep them from going where God wants them to go. And so all of this indicates to us that the real conflict here is not just a political conflict. The real conflict here is between Yahweh God and between Pharaoh, who is setting himself up as as God, or who, who believed he was God. The real issue here is not even necessarily between the Egyptians and the Israelites. It's between Pharaoh the son of Ra, the Egyptian god, and God, Yahweh God, the creator God. You can see how this plays itself out. Look at verse 11. Therefore, here's the specifics. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They, Israel, built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. And so here you've got the Israelites building cities for the glory of the kingdom of Pharaoh. And later in the book of Exodus, they build, using the same word, the tabernacle for the glory of Yahweh. Notice the language also in verses 13 and 14. Let me read those to you. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, this is kind of hard to see in English, but over and over again in these two verses, the word that is translated serve in a lot of the Old Testament is used here. And this word is, it can mean to serve, to worship, to live for. It's kind of got a big semantic range. But the point here is that they are very much serving Pharaoh here. They are living for Pharaoh, not by their own choice, but they are living for him. They are serving him. But what is God's goal for Israel? I want you to flip over to Exodus chapter 3, probably one page over in your Bible. And I want you to look at verse 12. What does God want for Israel? Verse 12. Speaking to Moses, he said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall, this is the same word, serve God on this mountain. And so 
The idea here is that Israel is serving the wrong master. God's goal for them is that they would serve him, that they would worship him, that they would live for and spend the time of their lives in service to him. But Pharaoh here is enslaving them and forcing them to serve him. They are serving the wrong master, and Moses wants to draw this out and make it clear to us the circumstances here of serving the wrong master. Now, serving the wrong master, to to put it mildly, does not result in good things. Look back at verses 13 and 14 in chapter 1. So, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, serve, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And then as if that's not a clear enough description, he goes back and summarizes the whole thing. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And we don't have time to go into the specifics of ancient Near Eastern brick making. I'm not sure you would want me to go into the specifics of ancient Near Eastern brick making. Suffice to say, that is not the way you want to spend your days, making bricks in a kiln in Egypt. This is a long-term political policy. This is not for a few years, right? Israel is in Egypt for 400 years. Generation after generation of Israelites grew up in this land, reached age where they were adults, and were forced into these kilns to spend their lives in the smoke and the soot in back-breaking labor, making bricks for the glory of Pharaoh. They were taken away from their families for long periods of time. If they didn't work hard enough, they were brutally beaten by the taskmasters who were set up over them. This is not a pretty picture. This is not fun. This is life under the wrong master. Now, I want you to see the contrast here. Go back to chapter 3. And look how God describes what life will be like for Israel under his leadership in service to him. Chapter 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I mean, the description here of this land is compelling and good. It's a land that is a broad land and flowing with milk and honey. I mean, imagine the contrast here that God is painting between service to Pharaoh and service to him. This is, I think, an important lesson for us. Sort of amazing in my own life and probably in your life too. It's sort of amazing that sometimes we think of God's, of service to God, of God's law and of God's lordship as restrictive and binding and frustrating and keeping us from true freedom, right? 
And, and sometimes we think that true freedom to really live life well will be found in doing whatever I want to. If I can just be driven along by my desires, wherever they will go, then I will find happiness and I will find true freedom. And I think that the reality that we sometimes think that indicates just how badly we have been duped by sin and how badly we have been tricked. We're always serving someone, as we talked about when we began this morning. Even when when you think you are completely free from any higher power, you are always serving someone. Most of the time, our passions and our lusts are driving us along and controlling us and carrying us toward misery and toward death, toward chaos. And the Bible and the book of Exodus give us a very stark contrast between the yoke of Christ, which is gentle and easy to bear, and his leadership is is good, and he brings us to a good place, and he satisfies us with good things. And the Bible paints a stark contrast between that picture of service to the Lord and the picture of enslavement to sin and the chaos and the burden of sin and the harsh reality of what it looks like to serve a lesser master. And I think that's one of the major points that you get out of this first chapter. The contrast could not be clear between Pharaoh's lordship over Israel and Yahweh God's lordship over Israel. Now I want to bring this into the New Testament and apply this to our lives. And I want to do that by reading Romans chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it on the screen. Verses 16 to 23. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. You'll notice here that there's not a third option. You're going to serve someone. Sin or righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The difference between these two masters could not be clearer. And our problem is we don't actually believe this is true, I think. We don't deepen our guts say and believe, yes, service to God and to his righteous law and word is better than service to sin. And in fact, service to sin will lead me to chaos and misery and frustration and death, and service to the Lord will lead to life with him and eternal life. What a difference. 
What a contrast. And we see this quite clearly in the book of Exodus. And you can see here in Romans 6, the very last verse here, the wages of sin is death. That leads us in Exodus to our second consequence here. The first consequence of serving the wrong master is bitter bondage. The second consequence is that when you serve the wrong master, you are destined for death in verses 15 to 22. Destined for death. Now we skipped over verse 12, but I want to go back and read that as we jump into verses 15 to 22. So their taskmasters are set up over them, this long-term policy to try to keep the Israelites from having children and from growing, but it's not working. Look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They're trying to minimize the number of Israelites to keep them confined to a certain space, and it ends up doing the opposite. They multiply, and not only do they multiply, but they spread out. Now they're taking up more land because there are way more people who are coming into their numbers. And so Pharaoh sees this over time, and he implements a further policy. Look at verse 15 and verse 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other Puah. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, to set you up for this story, there are two parallel threads running through it that we need to follow. One is the work of the midwives and how God blesses them, their resistance to the demands of Pharaoh. And because of that, we get their names here, And they're memorialized in Israel's history because of the good work that they did in fearing God. It's interesting here that we get their names, and in this entire book, we never know which Pharaoh it is who's in Egypt. We don't ever get his name. Pharaoh is not a name. That's a title in Egypt, like a king. But we don't ever hear his name. But these two women are memorialized here. Verse 17 explains to us why. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So that's one thread. We have to follow the midwives through this. The other thread, and probably the overarching point of this section, is that slavery to the wrong master gets worse and worse and worse and results in death. And Pharaoh will go to any lengths necessary to keep Israel from fulfilling God's purposes for them. And so those two threads run through this. Look again at verse 16. He tells, probably through a bureaucrat, doesn't speak directly to them at this point, but he, he sends word to these midwives, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool. Now, this is not to say that Hebrew women had this special stool that they gave birth on. What this is probably saying is when you see the child... When the child is born and you see the child, peek down and see if it's a boy or a girl, because biology is still there, and if it is a boy, kill him. That's what this is probably saying. If it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. This is horrific public policy, right? And he obviously wants this done secretively. He doesn't go public with this yet, because it probably wouldn't go over particularly well. 
And he wants this done secretly, and so he tries to recruit these two midwives. Now, most likely, these were, there were not only two midwives for all the Israelites. Most likely, these were the top two. These were the administrators. They sort of provided leadership and oversaw all the other midwives who worked under them. And so what he essentially wants to happen is, while these women are giving birth and they're struggling in the pain of childbirth, When the baby is born and the midwife is holding the baby and the mother is still recovering and is not clear in her thinking, if she sees it's a boy, Pharaoh wants her to strangle the child or quickly take care of the newborn baby. And he wants them to do this before the mother even realizes what is happening. Now, my wife was a labor and delivery nurse for a number of years and loves the birthing process, and it's a hard sell to get women who have given their lives to this to see a baby born and turn around and kill that baby on the spot. But this lets us know just how sick and power-hungry a ruler Pharaoh is here. And so these midwives fear God. They know that there is a moral standard, and they are accountable, and they refuse to go along with this. Now, what's interesting here, and you may not have picked this up on reading this before, but there's probably a number of years that pass between verses 16 and verse 18. So in verse 18, you have Pharaoh noticing that this policy is not working, and you've got the explanation of why in verse 17. The reason for this is that at this time, infant children were all dressed the same, and they probably all had the same haircuts. And so, if a child was born and nothing was done about it, you could cover it up. And you could act as if you had a female, a little girl. And this would not have been known until a number of years later, maybe five, six, seven years later, when all of a sudden in Israel, there are all these seven and eight-year-old boys running around. And it's like, what happened? You guys didn't follow through on what I told you to do. There are an equal number of boys and girls in Israel. And so this causes, verse 18, where Pharaoh calls the midwives in and personally deals with them. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. Now, verse 19 has been discussed to no end. What happens? What are they saying? The midwives said to Pharaoh, here's what they say, they give, the answer they give to him. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, what's going on here? Do the midwives lie? Are they making this up? Is there actually a physiological difference between Jewish women and Egyptian women, where they just give birth quicker? I'm no medical doctor, but I don't think that's the situation here. Could be. One author I read said that this was probably more of a cultural practice, that Egyptian women were less involved in their giving of birth. They sort of laid back and let the midwife take care of everything as much as possible. They were sort of out of it and weren't as concerned, especially the the women that Pharaoh would have been dealing with. A little on the wealthier end, not as concerned with what's happening. Maybe you had other people involved, right? Whereas the Jewish women were much more active and involved in the birth of their own children. They did it with minimal assistance. I don't really know what the answer to this is. But I'll tell you, whatever the midwives did here is fine. Did they lie? Maybe. Is that a problem? Apparently not. 
if they did. I think clearly in Scripture, you have to rightly understand what it means to bear false witness and the implications of that. And there is a place for deception in the Bible, certainly in times of war. And so these midwives are doing the right thing, even if they're lying and they're protecting these children. And God is fine with it and more than fine with it. And we should be too. Look at verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So God's favor is manifested on the midwives in two ways. First of all, Pharaoh doesn't kill them on the spot, which he could have done. Apparently, he buys what they're selling him in verse 19, and he listens to them and believes them. The second thing is very interesting in verse 21. It says, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, in our culture, in our world, we think that well, why wouldn't these midwives have have their own families? And we don't know for sure, but it actually makes sense that they went into this profession because they were barren. And so they could give their time and their attention to helping other women have children. And at this point, because these two had sort of risen through the ranks and were the most prominent midwives and the administrators, it actually makes sense that they were a bit older and probably past childbearing years. And so when God blesses them here, what is likely happening is that even though they were past childbearing years, the Lord honored them for what they had done and gave them children that they had never had before, which is a pretty neat picture. God was honoring them in a special way because of their fear of him and their faith in him. But all of this leads us to the culmination of this passage, which is where this, the other piece of this comes in. I think the main part of this text, verse 22. Since this isn't working, then, verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So you can see the progression in policy here and in oppression of the people of Israel. It goes from, let's make them work very, very hard, so we'll kill some of them off, and they won't have time to go home and be with their wives and raise children and have children, to, let's have the midwives kill the boys so they can't raise an army to fight against us secretively, to, okay, that's not working, let's go full tilt, and enlist the entire nation of Egypt into keeping these people from becoming stronger. Now he feels comfortable enough going public with what he's doing, and he conscripts all of the Egyptians to be a part of this. Now it's important to understand that the Egyptians viewed the Nile River as a god. We'll see this later on as we get into the plagues. But they viewed the Nile as a god who gave life, I mean, it provided water so that they could grow crops, and most of the Egyptians lived right along the banks of the Nile. And so they viewed the Nile as a God who gave life and as a God who took life away. And so it's highly likely that when this command went out, this policy went out, that the people were told that the God of the Nile would be honored by the sacrifice of Hebrew children being thrown into the water. And then the Nile River could decide what he was going to do with those children. And so if that's the case, and it it is, I think, 
probably the case, this sets the slavery of Egypt to Pharaoh and their service to Pharaoh in direct opposition to service to Yahweh God. The gods of Egypt serving them results in death, and the God of Israel, the Yahweh God, the creator God, the true God, service to him results in life. And if you think about it, this takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the curse on the serpent. What does God tell the serpent? He tells the serpent that there's going to be conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we know that that culminates in the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent on the cross, but as we move toward that moment in history, there are all of these skirmishes and battles between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And this is one of those battles. Pharaoh is very much acting and living out his position as the seed of the serpent, trying to kill the descendants of the descendant of Eve, the descendants of Abraham, the promised line, the seed of the woman. And so he's trying to stamp out God's line that God's promises will come through. Now, this whole story here of the midwives and this policy to throw Hebrew children into the Nile River as a sacrifice to the God of the Nile River, this sets us up for chapter 2, which we'll get to next week, which is where God, in the midst of all of this, brings a deliverer, literally a savior, to his people. But I want to end this morning by just sort of bringing you back to the application of this whole picture that's given here. I want to remind you that you and I are born into slavery to sin. I mean, that's the circumstance. Sometimes you may feel like, well, I don't choose to struggle with these desires, and I don't choose to be corrupted by my nature, just like Israel didn't necessarily choose to go into Egypt. But we're born in slavery to sin, and we go on choosing to commit sin and choosing to further enslave ourselves to sin. And the result of that is condemnation and death. That's the end game, as Romans 6 made quite clear. Slavery to the wrong master results in death. The wages of sin are death. But, as we will see throughout the book of Exodus, God lovingly and graciously sees his people in this circumstance and in this predicament. We read it in chapter 3. He sees them in their affliction and their slavery, and he has made a covenant with them, and he loves them, and he is going to pursue their good for his glory. And so he does this by sending a deliverer to his people, which is what we'll get into next time in chapter 2. So keep that contrast in mind this week as you move out into your daily life and you remember that sin always enslaves and always corrupts further. And sin is a terrible master to serve. And Yahweh God is a good master who satisfies and brings good fruit and healthy relationships and peace and joy. Contrast couldn't be clearer. Don't serve the wrong master this coming week. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are good. Teach us about your covenant love, your steadfast love. Help us to believe 
that obedience to you and pursuit of you is a, is a life-giving endeavor. Help us to spend our time, our lives, following you rather than enslaving ourselves further to, to sin and to Satan and to death. Open our eyes further to the contrast that we've seen this morning. Grow us by your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.